Good morning. <laughs> Let's get a get set up here. How's everybody doing this morning? Uh-oh, we got a wobbly table. <laughs> a rocking table. There we go. All right, we're in this. Uh, well, first, I want to welcome guests. I know we have a few uh, family and friends that came, so thank you very much. We are in this marriage uh, series, and it's short, but in the middle of it, so two weeks ago, Heidi and Kip gave the, the opening of it, and in the middle of it, we had these baby dedications. And uh, what is the baby, a dedication? Well, we, there's two parts I want you to get out of that. One, we mark a day. And uh, we talked about how we do that. So you pick the day on the calendar and you set it aside. And the second part is you actually claim that day as the beginning of a pleading with God uh, uh, that he will be with you, that he'll fill you with his presence and his provision to give you wisdom and how to raise these children. So it's this two-part, this dedication process. Is a, it's a day you begin and you can look back to it but it's the beginning of a process of growing closer to God and leaning on him for all your provision. And why did I say all that? Because that's what marriage is all about. That ceremony, that day we mark it, that day that we begin to live a life together as one, but with one, at trying to become more and more one with God. So if you've uh, seen our, our tagline or our picture, it's uh, either a killer marriage or a marriage killer. And, uh, it's an interesting one because I know a lot of people are looking for some answers, maybe some advice. So we'll see where we go with this. Um, and just a note for you that aren't married, um, our marriage message is really about God. So there's a lot in here for you too. It, it's gonna apply to you just as much as anybody else. Now these days it seems the definition of marriage keeps getting redefined. Well, you know, a lot of troubles come along with trying to commit to being married. And a lot of times people just think it's not worth it and they give up or they don't even want to try it. Well, that's not the kind of marriage that we're talking about. What we're going to talk about is the way God designed it, the way to have a killer marriage. And for Christians, for believers in Jesus, there are a set of rules, there are a set of guidelines. And it's not even a, I don't want to call them rules, it's revelation from God on how we can do this, how, how he's designed it to be. And what we're gonna touch on are three different points. Um, one, that when God made, when he created the world, he uh, designed it well, and he designed marriage to be an institution that was good and productive. He, it was made that man and woman will be one, that uh, we would be one with each other and we would be one with God. And the second point is among You've heard the term sanctification, ways that you become more like Christ. Among all the ways there are, being married to somebody and living out day to day is the best crucible for bringing out your weaknesses and encouraging your strengths. So making you more Christ-like. And the third point, and, and this is gonna be the biggest one that we're gonna shoot for here, is that Christian marriage declares the gospel of Jesus Christ more humbly consistently and clearly than almost any other kind of relationship you can have. In fact, if we do it really well, it becomes a picture of Christ and the church. And we're gonna hit on these throughout the marriage and or throughout this, this message uh, as we go through it. And it's my pleasure to introduce my beautiful wife. She's a wonderful wife and I could go on about that its own message, but I'll let her <laughs> take her time. 
Okay, so when we started planning this message out, we were trying to think of a word or a phrase that would just, you know, um, highlight the main point of what we wanted to say. And it was unity or oneness. Mm -hmm. So, of course, I'm thinking, hmm, unity, unity candle. Mike, we could get a picture. Remember 23 years ago? 23 years <laughs> a ago. A picture of us lighting our unity candle. You know, when the two families light a candle and then the bride and groom come together and light one. Yeah, we did that. Um, so I dug through our wedding album. And what? No picture. No picture. No picture. I got the candle. But <laughs> we don't have a picture. So really, we have no photographic memory. I feel cheated. I feel cheated on my wedding memories. So <clears throat> um, we have nothing to represent our oneness, like to display, to That's remember, right, to, to recall. So um, this is this the reason that um, we occasionally um, have opportunity to possibly derail <laughs> Struggles this marriage? Struggles meant to derail, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, um, you'll get that more in a couple minutes. And just for, just know that all further puns are intentional. Okay, so, <clears throat> well, this can't be. I feel no. cheated, so I want to do over. So we start talking about um, some weddings, and particularly one that we have seen, where they did this new cool ceremony. It was a sand ceremony. So the bride and groom each had a different vessel full of sand. And um, they had um, simultaneously poured the sand into one vessel. So um, then the sand mixes all up, and it becomes one. And this is really cool. I love this symbolism because you can keep it. You don't have to relight it on your anniversary or whatever mm -hmm. to remember that oneness. You can keep it. So I want to do over. So we're going to take this opportunity and do a sand ceremony. So if one or a couple of you wouldn't mind just taking a picture so we can update our photo, <laughs> that would be awesome. So so we're going to do a sand ceremony. Yeah. Do you want to? And then we can go on with a message. There we go. <laughs> Thank you. 
left no sand in our vessels in our individual vessels we put it all in and that's where I want to be I want to be all in in my marriage I want to be all in as one all in me too (laughs) (laughs) all right so now that that's taken care of we can complete our wedding album after 23 years let's pray and we'll begin with our message Father, we come to you and uh, we just honor you. We want to honor you, everything that we do. Uh, We get to talk about you. We get to tell others about you. And we get to show you in our marriages. We ask you to bless us now through our word, that hearts will hear your word, that they'll be moved, that this stepping out, it's not just raising your hand to praise you. It's actually living it out in our marriages every day. We ask you to bless those that are married, those that are struggling in their marriage, and those that are thinking about it at some point, that you would move them through this message in your word uh, to establish and to follow the order that you have set up. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so where do we begin? Well, uh, I like to joke around that when I preach, I go from Genesis to Revelations every single time. So let's start in Genesis 1. 1. 1, 1. Oneness. Uh, and we don't have all of the scriptures that we're going to refer to, but we're going to cover Genesis 1, 2, and 3 a lot, and then some other passages. But Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I already have to stop, because I need you to know about our God. Um, we're going to talk about how he created us in his image, but I need you to know what that means. And there's a huge difference between the creation, the first six days, the first half of day six, all that he did, the earth and the skies, and then how he filled it. And that creation is awesome. But what he did on the second half of day six, when he created us in his image, is enormous. It's, it's, there's night and day difference. It's all the difference in the world. So some of the attributes of God, and we could spend weeks on this, are God is spiritual. He exemplifies knowledge. He is wisdom, truthfulness, faithfulness. There are moral attributes like goodness and love. There's mercy and holiness, peace, righteousness, or justice. He exemplifies all those. There are, there's jealousy and wrath. We get that. We understand that. That's what God is, has those attributes. There are ap- attributes of purpose such as uh, will and freedom, freedom to act. There's power, there's sovereignty. These are all attributes of God. And when you think about that and what he gave to us, you can see the relationship. You can see how he created us in his image, not just to fill a role to bring him glory like the sun or like the moon or like water or the, or all of his creation is meant to bring him glory, but we have a special role in that. And we could spend weeks, like I said, contemplating this. But for our purposes, I just want, to gra- I want you to grasp this implication, the significance of who God is and that he created us in his image. Okay? So now back to Genesis. In 1 through 26, we go through the, those first six days, all of creation. And then in, in verse 27, he, goes, he says, So God created mankind in his own image, 
In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then verse 28, he gives us some purpose. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So he gave us some work. And then in verse 31, it's like he steps back and he says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. You know, at the end of each of the other days, he said it was good. But after he got done creating mankind, he said it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So God in verse 28 gives us this mission or this mandate. And there's this distinction, like I said earlier, that you know, we're different than the rest of his creation. And I, I need you to understand, uh, as we talk about married couples, there's two different, there are different roles. But with God and with mankind, man and woman were in his image. Our essence is the same, meaning that, uh, I'm gonna read this so I don't get it wrong. We have spirit and soul and we have personalities. But, and we're equally loved by God. So we are equally loved by God and we have equal heirship to eternal salvation. So we're equal in that, in that essence. But our function is different. And we'll talk about this a lot throughout, but I guess the best example I can give is uh, God and Jesus in essence are both God. But in function, they're they are different roles. And Jesus has taken a sub authority uh, role to God. He, he, he submits to God in that role as our redeemer. God, our creator, Jesus, our redeemer. Okay, I'm gonna let that settle and we'll keep going on. So, so at the end of Genesis, man is created and it's very good and he's in the image of God. And we have a slide here that kind of establishes the order. And I wanted you to see God in Genesis 1.1, everything begins with him. Jesus is not specifically mentioned, but in 126, when he says, let us make them, it's implied that there's somebody else with God. And when you read the rest of the Bible, you understand that that was Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is under God's authority and then man, and that's man and, mankind, man and woman, so mankind. And then we are, have authority over the animals. Get this, that we are all created but God designed an order for things to work. So we need to work in that order. And that's why I wanted you to see that pictorially. So God looks and he says, it's very good. Not just good, but very good. So in Genesis one, God gives this overview, this, I made man, made human, right? But in Genesis two, he's a God of details. He paints this detailed picture it's beautiful. It, he, in other words, he says, watch this. He does. He says, watch this. So let's look into it a little bit further. And we'll skip down to verse seven in Genesis two. And it says, then the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils and breath and the breath of life. And the man became a living thing. And you think, well, why did he just repeat what he said in Genesis one? Well, because there's a lot more in it. There's a lot more meaning to it. The Hebrew form of the word uh, to, to form is, is yastar, and it means to form as a potter or to construct. So God formed or constructed man. He took the dirt, the dust, and he constructed him. 
these elements. And then he breathed life into him. He gave him the work. And this is just a huge side note. You know, originally when everything was really good, there was one rule. There was only one commandment. Don't eat from that tree in the middle of the garden, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's it, that's all we needed. We didn't need a whole book of rules. So lawyers were out of work. I mean, you, you didn't need it. We had one rule, everything was very good. So God formed him and put him in the garden to work. Then we go to verse 18, and God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a helper. But no suitable helper was found. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man, and he brought the man, woman to him. So women, woman was fashioned laterally, not a top-down formation of dominance or a bottom-up um, formation of subservience. Right. The word made here is a little different than the word made used for man, which here it means it's banna, which means to build, as in a house or a temple, a city or an altar. So fashioned. I would like to think of the word fashioned. <clears throat> so actually, I'd like to pause here a minute and explain this a little bit better. So let's just take a little sidetrack. Um, when I started to study this, I wanted to know the definition of a suitable helper, a helper, right? So I want to know what my role is as a wife, what, what I need to be teaching my daughter to be as a wife someday, and what I need to be teaching my sons to be looking for in a wife. Yes. So I do what most of us do, and I Googled helper. And dictionary.com comes to me and says it is a person or a thing that helps. <laughs> According to this, I can say that dictionary.com is not a, a helper. helper. <laughs> okay, however, there was a second definition listed as, I don't know if we have that, it's an extra locomotive attached to a train at the front, middle, or rear, especially to provide extra power for climbing a steep grade. Some synonyms would be a double header or a pusher. Trains. Really? really? <laughs> Kip got hunting. He likes hunting. I get trains. trains. <laughs> All right. So the first thing that comes to my mind, <clears throat> a tune. No, not a circus tune like before. But the Orange Blossom Special. But for this series, we're going to rename it um, the Killer Marriage Special. And my lovely daughter is going to give you a glimpse of what I heard in my head that day.
Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is my inspiration. So, continuing with that inspiration from the music, um, let me um, share with you what I chugged along and did some re more research on trains. So, and I absolutely now love the analogy of marriage as a train. It, it's amazing. We've been thinking about this for weeks now and we keep coming up with more analogies, but we'll continue on with this as we talk about uh, marriage. So if you think about the man's role in the marriage and then equate that to a train, it's kind of understood, commonly understood that you, you know, the description of the man is to be the leader, to be that, to, you know, take God's mission and move it forward on the tracks. But where'd the tracks come from? Well, that's God's design and he's laid it out for us. He's prepared it for us. He's got work for us and he sets us each one up on our own tracks. They may look like somebody else's, but they're our own tracks and we need to be there. What people miss a lot is who the conductor is. Most people think they're the conductor but Jesus is the conductor. Man is the engine, Jesus is the conductor, and God's laid out the plans, all right? We have a slide of a two trains, uh, and I left out the rest, uh, two engines. I left out the rest of the trains because we're not talking about family this message, we're talking about marriage. So we've got two engines and they look alike, and there's a really big reason for that. I need your help here. Okay. Okay, so along with the slide, I actually have a a model, a visual for you. And um, this is Hank, by the way, Hank and his other part. Okay, oops, wrong way. All right, so a helper is really another engine, right? It's to support the main engine or the lead engine. What it is not, and what I pictured, because before this I really wasn't, you know, down on train terminology, I thought it was like a tinderbox, okay? Um, the tinderbox is, uh, it's got a cool name and it's like, oh, tender, that's kind of feminine. So that'd be like appropriate, right? Wrong. Well, okay. <laughs> so it's special, it's a specialized car to carry like coal, um, where did I live? Okay. Fuel, water, supplies, tools, things like that. I don't want to be a carrier. I don't want to be a tinderbox. It has, yeah. It's um, not what you're designed so, to be. But That's the right. thing is, is that I have a feeling that a lot of even the Christian community looks at a wife as a tinderbox. Okay, but it's not. The helper is another engine. It's so. Um, so I just need you to keep this description, this visual, this picture, and the tune in mind as we go through this, um, this message. So let's get back to God's word. All aboard? All aboard. There you go. <laughs> All right, so we're in Genesis 2. So we've gone through Genesis 1, we've started into Genesis 2, and we go down to where um, the union comes together. In Genesis 2, 23 and 24, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. I don't know if you saw that, because it happened really quickly, but that was the first marriage right there. The marriage ceremony performed by God, where he joined them together in a union. They become one flesh. Verse 25 says, and Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. There were, they were one, and they were one with God, 
and it was all good. There was no shame, there was no guilt. End of chapter two. So yeah, <laughs> we're at the end of chapter two, and it is all beautiful. They were naked and felt no shame. <laughs> Can I get an amen? Amen. All right, <laughs> then chapter three. You know it's not good when it starts with a serpent. The crafty God wannabe. He went directly to the woman. <clears throat> Excuse me. Why? Not because she's weak, but because it would be out of God's order. Satan is for chaos. <laughs> Remember a minute ago, our, our train analogy? Satan just became an uncoupler. Yes. So I need to pause here and explain the coupler on a train. Uh, a lot of you guys, like here, you would think it's the magnet in between. And we've got a picture of a coupler between two cars. And this is how they work. They're, they couple together and they hold the two trains together. From a marriage point of view, I'll think about it as the communication or the like-mindedness. Are you headed in the same direction to begin with? And then how closely are you related in this, this uh, train, this track that you're on? There's another word that I need to, I want you to redefine, I want you to relearn. And we're gonna talk about it a, a little bit more later, but right now, that word is submission. Submission comes with a, a bad connotation, especially in our culture. We don't wanna submit to anybody else. We think we're in control. Well, if you say this word a little bit differently, say it as submission, like a mission in, inside of a mission, it all starts to feel a little bit better. So it truly means a mission within a mission. If our overall goal or our mission is in life is to bring glory to God, and it is, you may not know it, but it is, then submission to bring glory, the submission to bring glory to God through marriage is, is in there, and we work together. And we do that by acting out these different roles that he has designed, established for us. Um, do we have... Yes, there's a ne the next slide shows you, we talk about the uncoupler and how Satan is the uncoupler. And if we can go to the one where uh, Satan in Genesis three puts things out of order. Um, do you wanna go with this one? Um, sure, yeah, so um, <laughs> Satan then puts himself at the top of the stack. I'm sorry. <clears throat> so the serpent, he was a created being, but he is not a creator. Did you I'm sorry, yes. Uh, so Satan comes through the serpent and you'll see how, you know, he was the lowest on the, the line of authority. So Satan comes through the serpent, speaks to woman, and you can tend, it's just flipped the order that it's supposed to be. The woman is uncoupled, so not one. They're standing there next to each other if, in the reading, but they're not communicating well. So the woman sees that it's good to eat and takes it, it's desirable. She believes Satan, doubts herself, and goes on and offers it to the man. But he knew that it was wrong and he still disobeyed God. So that whole uncoupler, unco to recognize that is enormous. And then to recognize what mission we're on and that we each have sub-missions within the greater mission is huge. And that's really our, our main point in marriage. So we know this part, like Mike said, in verses in chapter in Genesis three verses one through seven, it basically says Satan goes to Eve. Eve doubts and gives in, bites the fruit, 
offers to Adam, Adam tastes, and then they are ashamed. They hide, and then they try to cover themselves up. Mm -hmm. But God, and I'm telling you people, I love these words, but God, it's just like a sigh, right? It's like a a sigh of relief. It is another uh, word, phrase for redemption, Mm -hmm. right? But God comes to the rescue. Okay, so those first seven wor- cha- uh, verses of chapter three, you think we're on a train wreck. They just screwed it all up. We're, sin is now in the world. This evil is in the world. Like Sherry said, but God, he starts to put things back in order. So Satan tries to get it out of order, create ca- chaos. God comes back and offers us the right order. In Genesis three fourteen and 15, he calls out to man. He asks him where he's at. What's going on? See, he could have snuffed out Adam and Eve right there at that point. Could have been done, just recreate everything, start over. Who would have known? But he didn't. And Eve, Adam and Eve, you know, they come back and he gives them another chance. You know, Adam wasn't the leader, but God gives him another chance to be the leader. Uh, When he speaks to, to Eve, she starts to blame. You know, and we all do this. We all have excuses of why we do what we do. She blamed the animals, she blamed Adam. And, but when you think about it, she had dominion over the animal. She didn't have to obey it, she didn't have to do what it said, and she had equal authority with Adam. So she didn't have to go astray. I mean, she, had, she was in this line of equal authority. All right, then God speaks to the serpent. However, he doesn't ask him a question, he just addresses them and he speaks a curse. He curses Satan. But he announces to the woman that she will now have struggles because of the, um, the experience that she chose, or the option, the opportunity, whatever you want to call it, she chose to, to eat of the fruit. She will now have severe labor and childbirth pains, and she will also have the desire to lord over her husband. The man's role of leadership will be what the woman will desire. And this sin has turned a harmonious system that of God-ordained roles into a distasteful struggle of self-will. Okay, so in this address, when God addresses Adam, he just lays it all out there. He says, things have changed now. You've, you've broken trust with me. You've separated yourself from me. So we can't continue. And he says in Genesis three seventeen and 18, because you listened to your wife and ate from the fruit of which I commanded you, you must not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you, and through painful toil you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. So basically he's saying now you're going to have to work for your food, and it's going to be hard work. You know, we think, and Sherry's going to get into this, about the curses the wrong way. The ground is cursed. Pain and difficulties are going to abound, but God is into restoration and redemption. So we see doubt. We have excuses and we experience chaos. Another one. Here we go. But God. But God. In verse 21, God continues to love us and he continues to redeem us. He gave appropriate clothes at this point. He sacrificed an animal to cover them better, unlike what they tried to do with fig leaves. 
That's right. This is a picture of Jesus covering our sins, making a way for us to be one again with God. So now what? We are all so familiar with his overall account of Genesis, of the creation of man and the garden story. We've read about it. We've seen felt stories displayed. We've seen um, art, uh, art, art ma ma many art forms of the garden, right? Even pagan religions have a story of creation that is so very similar to the biblical history. We get the gist. However, the story seems to emphasize that Adam and Eve hang their heads in shame and walk out of the garden. They walk out defeated. So of course, this is the way we follow. We are in our personal walks, in our, in our marriages, we live like we have been cursed. We forget verse 21. We forget our God is in the details and we forget but God. If you remember back in the garden, when God designed it, he set it up with the tree of life and a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the only command was not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So to know evil and then to be able to eat from the tree of life would be devastating. Can you imagine living eternally with evil? And that's what God is redeeming us from. He's saying, Adam and Eve, I love you too much to leave you here. So that's why he pushes them out of the garden. We've got to get over the curse and get over the disappointment of being out of the garden and understand that God loves us so much that he's going to take that away from us and send another way for us to come and pursue him in Jesus. So before God sent them out of the garden, like I said, he sacrificed an animal to make clothing, okay? Remember, we are made in his image. Adam and Eve walked out of that garden well-dressed. Isn't that redemption? We need to walk forward in our lives, in our marriages, knowing that we are representations of the bride of Christ, his church. So, so go ahead. let's live in our marriage like Genesis 1. And let God reestablish that order. He did it. Now we just got to live in it. So we have, if we go back to slide one, a little bit different version. After the fall, there are consequences, but the order's been restored. So God shows his love in trying to redeem, the, redeem us. In, our, in our, our train analogy, you know, what does that look like in, in a marriage? Well, you and I all see Genesis 3 marriages. Uh, we have experienced time in our marriages where we had chaos. We've had doubts, we've had struggles, we had lack of communication, and we will still probably do that. But our goal is to get to the Genesis 1 where God wants us back again, okay? An example of this would be like the engine, the man, in control and dominating and maybe treating his helper his suitable helper more as the tender car and in that the the helper at this point forgets her identity as a fellow engine and she just kind of goes along for the ride does what he says you can see that there's a lack of momentum there wouldn't be the same traction the same strength the same power in that kind of a relationship another one would be that the engine doesn't pull his own weight. He doesn't lead his family. 
You know, God's got pretty defined roles about what a man is supposed to do, how he's supposed to lead his family in shepherding them, in providing for them and protecting for them. And he has a suitable helper, but if he's not doing that, that leaves her in a bad spot also. And this is where she would push ahead and try to take the lead, try to be that main engine. This is that warning God talked about in Genesis 3. Um, that's what God warned Eve about. The helper makes the lead engine kind of like a caboose. That's right. These are a couple of examples of how we live under the cursed way of way of thinking and, and not under the way, a way of thinking like we're redeemed or we're, God's there for us. So sticking with that same train thought, understand God is still control in control and he always has been. He is first. God is first. As much as we want to be first and think about ourselves, God is first. Then man, and his role is to keep order, to do the job of keeping this train moving, whether it's a, just a couple or whether it's a, a big family. And you'll see later as it, how it applies to the church. And then the woman, her role is as a helper. It's not a tag along or this tender box that we've described. She's an engine in her own right. She has her own abilities and authority and is very similar to man. Some examples of the man's role, I, I mentioned those, uh, the, the provider, the leader, the, the shepherd, to love, to serve, to serve even to the point of death, and at least every day dying to self. That's what the man's role is to, to do. The woman's role is that like-mindedness. So I talked about that coupler. That's why women are so good at relationship. It's because God designed them that way. Before you go on, yeah. I, no, this wasn't planned, but That's when okay. you were saying that, it was kind of sexy, but um, <laughs> about the woman and, uh -huh. you know, you're like emphasizing that um, her own abilities and authority, very similar to you. And, you know, as you were saying that, I could feel my shoulders go back a little bit and me there standing up taller. So thank you. Thank <laughs> you for, yeah. for making me. Whew. No. <laughs> I'm kidding. All right. Because of Genesis 3, life is hard and we've got to get over that. We know that. So if you think about life from a train analogy, the uh, slopes, the grades, uh, just the, the raw tonnage that trains carry, life is hard. The, uh, the long grades, maybe you're experiencing something that is taking years, maybe all your life that you have a struggle that nobody else has that you know of. Wouldn't it be great to have a suitable helper to go through that with? to do that. And see, the way that works is you end up having more traction. There's more wheels pulling. There's more strength. When I talked about that coupler, there's a, a phenomenon called drawbar stress with trains. And if you have 40 train cars, say, behind one engine, he can pull that. But you add another 20, and it puts too much stress on those individual couplers. So he may be fine pulling, but that coupler may break. So your family or your communication breaks down if it's too much. But if you space that helper out in there, you can add a, a, another helper, the suitable helper engine, 40 cars back, and they can pull another 40. So you're pulling 80 cars with the two engines pulling together. That's what God's design is. That's God's economy. So we're able and we should be living like we're in Genesis 1 because God's made it possible, he's offering it to us to begin our eternity with him right now. So let's not stay in Genesis three with the shame and the guilt and trying to cover ourselves. 
And let's do that in our marriage covenants. So where do we go from here? We've talked about marriage, how to live it out. And we have not given you a to-do list. You know, there's not, there are a lot of killer marriages out there and they all look a little bit different. And there isn't one list of things to do, but there is behind it one motivation and that's, that's God. So we're trying to remind you of the way God's designed you and your marriage and your relationships and his desire for you to come back. Remember when I, I mentioned one of the attributes is freedom or will? He gives us the opportunity to reject him, but he also gives us the opportunity and he loves, he's just hanging there ready for us to pursue him. So let's use this analogy uh, to help learn, but I don't want you to get confused with analogies or parables. You've got to get into God's word. I mean, we've read through the first three chapters of Genesis and you guys thought you all knew it but I guarantee you all learned something today. So read through his word and use that in your marriages. So let's live in Genesis one and two, but then we become an example or an encouragement to others. How are we as part of the church being the bride of Christ? He is the leader and we are the helper living without doubt and shame, but living in a hope, a confidence, and a trust in God. I, I said earlier, one, the third point we were going to try to touch on was how uh, marriages fit in or a picture of the church as the bride of Christ. Have that in your mind. Um, another passage that is used a lot for marriages is Ephesians 5, 21 verses 33. In fact, I have a coin in my pocket I've carried for 23 years that has a, Ephesians 5, 25 because that's the man's commandment to love his wife. That passage a lot of times gets uh, kind of poo-pooed or you know, discarded because it says submit. I think, I hope we have dissolved that today for you. But I'm gonna read a couple of passages, verses out of that whole passage and I want you to hear it and then we're gonna reach into this, this picture of, of the church as the bride of Christ. So verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So we're, we're acknowledging that authority that God and Jesus have over our lives. And then in verse 31, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Does that sound familiar? We just read that in, in Genesis one, and this is in Ephesians. So the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. He says it right here. And then the next sentence is what the killer is. I'm talking about, he says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So you go from this marriage discussion right into the church looking like the bride of Christ and waiting for him to come back. That's woven through all of scriptures. And I said earlier, we're gonna go from Genesis to Revelations. Well, we're going to. So we're gonna introduce this idea of the the church anticipating Jesus is coming back. And we're gonna do that as we talk about the Lord's Supper and preparing or a rehearsal dinner, if you will, for the marriage the next day or when he comes back. So this is sweet. Revelation 19, nine says, on that day, the bride, Christ Church, will come arrayed in the splendor of spotless holiness to wed her king. And the glory of that festival will be unmatched bliss the angel rightly says, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. This is one party you are not gonna wanna miss. 
Okay, so you picture Genesis 1 and 2, everything that you know about being perfect. And before that, that's what we want to get back to. God is taking all this time that he created for us to come back to him, to be prepared for when he returns. And then it's back to bliss again. That's right. That's not a party you're going to want to miss. So we're going to take communion in a little bit when we finish this. But I want you to remember what God has in store for us. Now, one of our favorite speakers is uh, Tony Evans. And he just did a really good job in his marriage kingdom, uh, our kingdom marriage, I'm sorry, uh, series. And we read it, but I want to read a few things from it and then we'll pray and end. Marriage is a gift to us from God. Yet so many of us don't see it as such. To understand the value of such a gift, we must unpack the purpose of marriage as God sees it, not as culture sees it or defines it. The unifying central theme throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. And one of the most precious ways we can participate in that glory is through the godly union of a man and a woman. It expands his rule and, it re and his reach in, in our lives. A godly marriage in many ways mirrors the order of things as it relates to God and humanity. The father and the son are equal, yet in function, the son defers to the authority of the father. The church called the bride in scripture is submitted to Christ, her bridegroom, even though Christ gave his own life for her. That is God's order for a kingdom marriage. Husband and wife are equal in the eyes of God while one functions as the head and the other as the partnership, the in partnership. Each is to love and respect each other as God has designed. So I just ask you to pray with me at this point. Father, we come to you and we've gone through so much of your word and we ask you to help that settle in our minds, our hearts, our actions, our activities. Help us to walk out of here changed. Help us to walk out of here driven closer to you, driven to pursue you more, whatever we're at right now. We're, you know, whether it's a new relationship or an older relationship, an experience, we just ask you to speak to each one of us. Lead us now today from this point forward to pursue you in our marriages and in the church, to, to move forward in the work that you have for us on these tracks that you've laid out for us. And we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.